This podcast contains detailed descriptions of violence and murder and is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. The material discussed is based on first-hand accounts and publicly available information. In producing this podcast, every effort has been made to show respect to those affected by the crime. And special thanks to author and historian Ted Dews for sharing his research and knowledge on the Betty Shanks murder and for taking the time to walk us through some incredible insights into the case. Just to let you know, where possible, the voices you'll hear are of those directly involved in the case. But in some instances, actors' voices have been used. A Brisbane girl was violently bashed and strangled while walking home at night. The killer has never been caught. This was this beautiful, low-risk woman murdered and left on the side of a road, thrown over a fence and into a backyard. 19th of September, 1952. There's been a shocking sex murder at Wilston. 400 police are now involved in a major murder manhunt. I'm Tori Shepherd, a journalist and a lover of intrigue, mystery and true crime. And this is Mapping Evil with Mike King, a world-renowned investigator and criminal profiler who uses smart mapping technology to track and catch criminals around the world. He's a bona fide cold case expert. It's a four-part series that delves deep into Queensland's most gruesome and longest-running cold case. One of the first things she said to me was, I know who killed Betty Shanks. Joe murdered Betty Shanks and I raced into my wife and I said he did kill her, he did kill her, there's no other answer. Crimes like this change a community. They steal our innocence and they cause us to lock our doors and look over our shoulders at night. It's become sort of a cliche, but the murder of Betty Shanks really was the day Brisbane lost its innocence. You know, it's the day after which people locked their doors at night, pulled their kids in when the sun went down. It sent shockwaves across Brisbane. In this episode, we're going deep into a suspect who definitely knew Betty. Her father had driven her to the Grange tram terminus on two occasions to meet Betty Shanks. Deshi went public with her story that her father killed Betty Shanks. She'd been kicked or bashed so hard on the side of the face that one of her teeth had dislodged from its socket, emerged through the cheek on the other side of her face and landed on the grass. Episode 3, Murdering Betty. Locating Justice. Okay, so just a quick recap on the Betty Shanks murder. It was the 20th of September in 1952. The body of the 22-year-old was found in the front yard of a house. It was the corner of Carberry and Thomas Streets in Grange in Brisbane. She'd been violently kicked and beaten. The details are horrific. Many men confessed and others had fingers pointed at them, but no one's ever been found guilty. Okay, Mike, we've been moving through these suspects, having a good look at what the evidence is, and now we hope that we're getting close to a potential killer. I always marvel at how seemingly intelligent people will confess to serious crimes that they never committed. Uh, could that be the case in some of these people that we've looked at in this particular case? I mean, there is so much more to explore in this perplexing whodunit, and I'm looking forward to getting closer to that person in the brown suit. So let's take this back to the night that Betty caught the tram. 
Recently, we spoke with the author of the book, I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks, Ted Dews. You know, he told us that after a lecture he gave one night, a woman approached him. She came forward and she said, uh, I'm Mari Patton, I was on Betty Shanks's tram that night. And she subsequently told me that she was in the back of the tram that night, this is tram 434, she saw Betty in the front of the tram and Betty saw her and they uh, waved but didn't speak because they were in different parts of the tram. Murray Patton said she got off the tram and walked quickly down Thomas Street because she was in a hurry to get home. And as she walked down Thomas Street, she saw a man in a brown suit under the street light of the Carberry Street, Thomas Street intersection. Now that was about 30 yards from where Betty Shanks was killed only seven or eight minutes later. So that meant that there were four people that night who saw the man in the brown suit. And the police eventually came to believe that it was the man in the brown suit who very likely killed Betty Shanks. This recollection from Marie, who now goes by the married name of Billy Lake, is really interesting to me for a number of reasons. First, was Marie walking in the same direction as Betty was walking? If so, why didn't they just wait and walk together? Or did she start a few minutes later and then look down the street where she saw this mysterious man in the brown suit? That troubles me a little bit because it would have been about 140 meters from the terminus if that were the case. It would have been dark. Now there was spotty lighting and it was much better at the street corner, but how accurate could her description be? And frankly, why didn't she hear Betty's screams if she was that close? It's really troubling. It is troubling if she was that close that she didn't hear the screams. I, again, I put, try to put myself onto that map and work out who heard it and if there's any reason why they might not have. And look, listeners, if you're like me and you want to follow those kind of twists and turns of Betty's last moments, steps, get to the website, Mapping Evil, and you can see all our maps there that just set out those crime scenes for you. You know, eyewitness accounts in reality are some of the most challenging forms of evidence we ever have in criminal cases. The problem is eyewitness accounts are a process of what is seen by influenced lighting, our personal biases, or maybe even our past experiences. And I am in no way discounting what was said, but I need to keep in mind that investigators and ultimately the courts are going to require multiple forms of evidence to believe that something occurred, not just the testimony of one person. And so I'm led to look at this from a behavioral perspective. And frankly, from a behavioral perspective, my first question would be, why Betty and not Marie? If they walked the same pathway, why was one picked and the other wasn't? That demands a follow-up question then. Was Betty a victim of opportunity or was she a target? And we keep looking at this man in the brown suit and we ask ourselves, who on earth is this person? And slowly over the course of this investigation, the name Eric Sterry comes to the surface. Mike, as you say, it's so complicated. And I think that's what makes this so fascinating. There are so many different characters woven through this narrative. A woman named Deshi Birdles claimed that her father, an ex-soldier who'd become a locksmith, was the one who killed Betty Shanks. 
and we actually know there is a connection between Eric and Betty. Here's what historian and author Ted Dews had to say when we spoke with him. Deshi's mother, Bernadette, told Deshi that after Betty Shanks won half share in first prize of the Golden Casket Lottery in April of 1952, this was six months before she was murdered, that Betty Shanks spent quite a bit of that money Uh, Well, she gave it to her parents and it was spent renovating the house. And one of the jobs that was done was to replace the locks on the house. And Bernadette said that Eric Sterry did that particular job for Betty Shanks. Did they have a relationship beyond that professional association? Well, Eric, from his medical records, was psychotic. He joined the RAAF in 1943, and in 1944, it was clear to his Air Force superiors that he had severe mental problems. Uh, By the way, he was discharged five months before the war in the Pacific ended with severe mental problems. Now, the psychiatrist who examined Eric in 1944 diagnosed him as psychotic. A closer diagnosis was that he was quite possibly schizophrenic or suffered from paranoia, employing delusional insanity. Deshi herself told me that he suffered from three principal delusions. His first delusion was that he was a war hero and expected to be treated like a war hero. Yet he never left Australia. He was never in combat. Yet in his photograph album, which is in my possession, I've got it at home, one of the photographs in the album is a photograph of Betty Shanks. It's a 1952 photograph. And on the back of the photograph, there are the words, Betty Thompson Shanks, murdered, 1952. Now, I asked Harold Bertels, Deshi's third husband, to have a look at that photograph and the writing on the back because he was very familiar with Eric Sterry and he was very familiar with Eric's writing and he told me that he believed that those words had been written by Eric Sterry. Holy cow, Tori, why on earth does this guy have a photograph of Betty Shanks in his album? I mean, did they truly have a relationship or was this a one-sided relationship, part of a bigger fantasy that he might have had? And then I have myself asking, could it have been in a wacky sort of way a memorial? Kind of like you see those people that walk around with wristbands lending support to a missing person case or in this case, a violent murder in his own neighborhood. It is so important that we examine these kind of weird pieces of information thoroughly, but also that we avoid jumping to conclusions. Let's go back to the actual attack. I mean, I don't want to sound gratuitous, but one of the really striking things about it was the violence and the chaos. I can't get it out of my head, the idea that teeth were found metres away from her body. We talked about that patterned mark on her forehead that was maybe a footprint. 
She was partially undressed, but we don't think that it was a sexual assault, despite what some of the newspapers said at the time. I mean, is it that it had to be committed by somebody who was having something like a psychotic disturbance? That would maybe support Deshi's theory about her dad, because she says her upbringing was very violent. Now, listen to this story from Ted. It's, it's pretty disturbing. And Deshi said it was fairly common in the house at Bowen Hills where Deshi and brother Darrell lived with Bernadette and Eric. For Eric, if he was displeased with his wife, Bernadette, or displeased with Deshi, he would pull their panties down and say, who's been at you? And Deshi said when she studied the crime scene, she was struck by the fact that Betty's panties had been pulled down, taken off and left by the fence. And she said that reminded her of her father's behaviour at home when both Bernadette or Deshi had acted in a way which annoyed Eric. So I think the police also came to believe that the few blood spots on the panties had come from an aerial spray of blood as Betty was kicked, which means that they were removed initially. And well, if they were removed initially, it's likely they were removed by the murderer. These cases are challenging. When we examine the behaviors of a violent crime, we have to think about it in a couple of different ways. With Betty's case, we have to consider whether the attacker knew her, and, and consequently, whether she knew the attacker. That's going to tell us whether this was an opportunistic assault or whether she was a target of this violence. And these violent assaults could be planned actions or they could be fantasized and then acted out. Something from a sadistic predator, for instance. You know, Tori, I think back to the Robert Ben Rhodes case that we talked about during season one of Mapping Evil. That case specifically points out some really important ways in which geography can play a role in helping solve these violent crimes. If you recall, Rhodes was believed to have killed as many as 300 women before he was put in prison for the rest of his life. This was a massive case that covered the entire United States, and it was a truck driver who was traveling from community to community. Law enforcement looked at each murder as a local crime rather than a serial criminal who was uh, responsible for everything. It wasn't until we were able to start looking at things like the trucking logs and, and using GIS to do some spatial analysis and some, what we call it geoprocessing, where we analyze how far this offender could get from point A to point B and still make it to the next truck stop where he was logged. We were able to look at things like credit card charges and way stations where his vehicle went through official locations with information and plot all of that out on maps to put together a really systematic and easy to understand timeline of where this predator traveled. That has been used and is still being used today to try to solve unsolved homicides or missing persons that would fit within his footprint of destruction.
Mike, you and I spent uh, a lot of time talking about serial killers and serial rapists and you taught me a lot about how they have these like a, a modus operandi and then a signature and like something that's a pattern that's particular to them. So I think that's what's really interesting about Betty Shanks where we've had all these random suspects and what we don't have yet is that overlay to fit it onto something that's been done elsewhere to get that kind of modus operandi. That's why I guess it's still such a big mystery. The thing I find so intriguing, Tori, is that Betty's case could have been an opportunistic case or it could have been that she was targeted. And this is why it's so important that we look into the organizational levels and and the things that happened in this case, because it appears that in her case, things didn't go like this predator planned. So as we look at each of these suspects in closer detail, I find myself discounting behaviors based on an accident, and I find myself leaning more heavily toward characteristics that suggest that this killer knew Betty and he wanted to punish her. Now, Deshi Bertels said that she went to the authorities several times to tell her story, but they didn't believe her. According to an article in the Daily Mail newspaper, Bertels said she witnessed her father burning his clothes in the backyard on the same night that Betty Shanks was murdered. Now that's huge to me. Her father, who she claimed was physically and sexually abusive toward her, then asked her to clean his leather boots and that they were stained with blood and tissue. And here's a really important part. Bertels was eight years old at the time. She said her father told her, don't say anything anything. or you'll end up like Like Betty Betty Shanks. So Bertel's upbringing, it was obviously really traumatic, Mike. She'd run away from home in 1960 when she was 16 years old and she went to the police. And when they asked her why she wanted to run away, she said she had to in order to live because her father would kill her otherwise, quote, just like he killed Betty Shanks. Now that's damning and disturbing, we kind of do have to keep in mind the the trauma that she'd been through and the fact that she was quite young. But she also goes on to say that the police said she shouldn't say things like that. They knew her father because he worked at the station. Remember, it was locksmith, so he, he worked on the locks at the station. Wouldn't that be tragic if because of relationship he wasn't looked at more closely? But here we have a woman whose opinions are based on her childhood memories. Now, that was a six to eight year difference between when this happened and when she went to police. All of these memories have been supported over the years by pieces of perceived or real evidence. But she truly believes that Betty and her father, Eric Sterry, were having an affair. Now, here's where I have a trouble with this from a behavioral perspective, Tori. Sterry was 10 years older than Betty. Now, some people may not think that that's too big of an age difference, but when you're 22 years old, that's a big difference in age. So I'd like to know a little bit more about their relationship because I really question the relationship since Betty seemed to be attracting the attention of others that were her age. She was running in pretty impressive government and academic circles. Why on earth would she be leaning toward a handyman or a locksmith? And, and could that guy really be the apple of her eye? I, I just have trouble with this. And we can't discount the story. 
but I personally need more behavioral information before I'm ready to say I'm feeling strongly about this one way or another. So this was one of the questions I put to Ted. Let's have a listen to that conversation. Why would he leave his vehicle and walk down the road unless you're saying he was laying in wait, which makes it difficult to think that some conversation occurred at the terminus unless it was someone entirely different. You see, Deshi's mother, Bernadette, was dissatisfied with the marriage from a very early stage and had her own life outside the marriage. She was what Deshi calls a party girl. And Deshi's mother wasn't home that weekend. Deshi remembers that very well. So that meant that the two children were in Eric's charge. And Eric took them and drove them to the Grange and parked the car near Wilston School and told them to go to sleep. And he left them on the back seat and they went to sleep, according to Deshi, and then Eric left the car. Now, this was not the only time in 1952 that this happened. It happened also in the winter of 1952, when Deshi said that Eric went to the terminus and brought Betty back to the car. And Deshi remembers Betty being brought back to the car in the winter of 1952. Deshi said that she and Eric argued quietly in the front seat while Deshi and Daryl were in the back seat pretending to sleep. And Deshi said that after they'd argued for quite a a long while, uh, in subdued tones, they weren't shouting at each other, Betty got out of the car on the passenger side, went around the front of the car in order to go home. The car was parked about 100 yards from Betty's house at 54 Montpellier Street. And Eric got out of the driving seat and went around the front of the car at the same time and then he put his hands around Betty's throat. And at that moment, Daryl, the younger brother, woke up in the back seat and saw through the windscreen his father with his hands around a woman's throat. And he shouted out, Mum, because he thought his father was assaulting his mother, as he commonly did. And that is what Deshi told me. And if it happened like that, it would have astonished Betty Shanks, who was used to civilised behaviour. But I don't think Betty was in danger at that time or even felt in danger. But she may have resolved at that time to put a stop to seeing Eric again. You know, I find Deshi's comments and her testimony to be really interesting, mostly around where she says her father parked the car. Again, I wonder why on earth, if this was a planned meeting, he would park there, other than maybe to keep his children from knowing that he was meeting with Betty. But 
again, I think about that, and I think about the distance he would have had to cover. If concealment was all that mattered, there were a lot of places he could have parked that car alongside that road. Today, we'd have the benefit of, of cameras inside of police vehicles or body cameras that the officers are wearing as they patrol an area or as they respond to this attack that night. All of that information could be used to validate whether vehicles parked along the road belonged in that area or not. And I really want to encourage everybody to just go back to the website. Look at our interactive map where, uh, where this claim of parking occurred. And then I want you to just think about it. Does it make sense to you? Is it relational to where Betty was attacked? You decide. You, you see if the geography and the behaviors and the way in which Betty was attacked help you to come to some conclusion that he was responsible. For me personally, I'm just not convinced. You know, I was thinking, Mike, we're talking about Brisbane as a, as a much quieter town than it is now. And so today you might be like, oh, well, he probably just couldn't get a closer park. But what we can still do is ask a question about whether anyone saw it parked there near the Wilston State School. And then we can start to go, was that for a reason? Like, was it to keep the kids hidden away? Still not clear on why the kids were there in the first place. And then we can start talking about, you know, was this relationship with Betty, was it real? Was it a fantasy? Was it, you know, how Deshi remembers it? There's, there are a lot of questions still here for me. Yeah, I mean, really, if, if this guy planned on killing Betty Shanks, would he take his children? Would he subject them to what could eventually be him in a disheveled state. We would have, in today's day, we would have the ability to see if he was in that neighborhood by a lot of different resources. We'd be able to go and grab data off of the car's computer to see if that vehicle was in that location. There are so many things today that we could do that then couldn't be done. But the bottom line is behavior doesn't change. All right, Mike, let's just let's just take a second here because this is a really good time to go back to one of the questions that we kept asking throughout season one. And I just can't stop thinking about what if it happened today? What role would GIS technology play in investigating the crime and how would they use it to make sense of all of this information? You know, GIS plays a huge role in these kinds of investigations, but not only GIS technology, sensor data is a huge help in these kinds of investigations. I think back to Betty Shank's watch, and it became a really important part of understanding when a certain event happened. Imagine if she had had on a smartwatch like today that would have given us biometrics on what her pulse was doing, what her heart rate was like, or, or when she fell. All of that information could really help us to start to hone in on things. Then you start adding all that other stuff that we've talked about, like data from vehicles or from cameras on buildings or doorbell cameras. All of that information added with, with weather, traffic conditions, lighting. It, it is so exciting to think about what today we can do in comparison to what people had to try to use and put together cases 70 years ago. But what's wild about that, isn't it, is that even though we don't have the biometrics of Betty Shanks' body as she got attacked, we do have a watch that stopped at exactly 9.53 p.m. 
Yeah, isn't that amazing? And could you imagine today what law enforcement could do with just that piece of information, knowing that now they're going to go into a community and say, hey, we want everyone in this community to check your doorbell camera footage or your security camera footage, or if you were driving through the neighborhood at that time to tell us what you saw or what you're finding. This is how cases are being solved so quickly today. And frankly, this is what is so frustrating when we look at these old cases, when we try to apply today's technology against those, is we have to use data collected 70 years ago. But science and technology today can still bridge that gap. And yet still, hopefully we have enough to start ruling people in and out, this whole grab bag of suspects that we've had, Mike. And one of the people who I really want to rule in or out because... We keep talking about him. I'm still very unsure about who he is, the mysterious man in the brown suit. So when we talked to Ted, I actually put the question to him. Let's have a listen to what he said. Who do you believe the man in the brown suit was? Well, Eric Sterry, the father of Desha Bertels. And Desha, who was eight years old at that time, when she contacted me, one of the first things she said to me was, I know who killed Betty Shanks. It's also interesting that there were three people at that tram terminus at Grange on the night of the murder who gave evidence at the inquest in February 1953. They said they saw the man in the brown suit. They described him moving restlessly about as he was apparently waiting for a tram passenger to arrive. So not to go somewhere, but waiting for someone to arrive to him. And one of those witnesses was Clarence Arthur Hovelrood. He'd been at a doctor's appointment and was walking back to his car. It was about 9.25 and he saw this man loitering nearby. And this is what he told the investigators at that inquest. I spoke to this man dressed in a darkish suit. I asked him if he had missed a tram and he never answered me. I said, look, I'm going up as far as the picture show if you want to catch the tram. He did not seem to be interested. All he said to me was, I've waited on a couple now, I'll wait for another. There's no question that there's a man in a brown suit skulking around either at the terminus or down the street. There's no question that Betty Shanks gets murdered a block from the tram and uh, that that piece is important to kind of put together. But we have to look at a couple of other clues in this case. And I want to start with that patterned imprint that ended up on Betty's forehead. It's described as a series of small round dots and it's been the subject of a lot of discussion by not only law enforcement, but the true crime community. And there are numerous explanations for the wound, including a theory that it happened when Betty was kicked in the head, causing this transfer mark, this imprint, and then of course a transfer of something else a little more unique, shoe polish. Now Deshi believes that the marks came from her father's shoes since she vividly recalls taking her father's shoes to a bootmaker to have rubber soles glued on. That's, that's pretty interesting. She remembers those shoes so well. But she states that her father was wearing those same shoes that night. In fact, she remembers having to put polish on those brown brogues on the weekend of the murder. And she shared this information with Ted Dews in 2013. When we got home, we were told to go to bed. My brother shared a bed with me. He was too scared to sleep alone. My father stayed out in the yard. 
and after a while I smelt smoke. When he walked past our bedroom, he was naked. There were no doors on any of the rooms in the house and the light from his room shined down the hall. And then, again, according to Ted, he told her to clean the front seat of the vanguard, to wash out the floor of the car on the driver's side and to clean those brown brogue shoes. She thought she was cleaning mud, but she later realised it was blood, skin and tissue. Mike, what are your thoughts about that idea that he asked her to clean up after him? I believe this woman remembers what she remembers. Now, whether it's accurate or not, I'm still kind of having some trouble understanding, especially because of the young age and the trauma that she went through and how our memories can sometimes evolve over time. This term, the blood, skin, and tissues, may have been even some creative writing on the author's part, or it could be factual. I just don't know, and I don't know how this many years later you you remember it in such detail unless it was really stamped into the mind the question i have is why she required to clean out the floor of the car there's no indication that betty was transferred anywhere there's certainly indication that there was a great deal of blood but i don't know that that would be dripping in the car it it really appears that betty remained in one general crime scene and I don't know, I'm I'm struggling with that a little bit. But I have to keep reminding myself, can you imagine this child having these memories about her father throughout her entire life? Whether they're true or not, this is a sad, sad story. And I hope that she's gotten the appropriate level of counseling that's needed to work through memories like this. I just don't know how to conceptualize this and put it against other evidence because again I go back to that thing a single piece of evidence is not strong enough to make decisions on. Look just before we get to that I did ask Ted who has done all this work what his gut feeling was about who killed Betty Shanks. Oh yes I believe Deshi. All of Deshi's evidence I've checked out and I believe the evidence points almost unmistakably to Eric Sterry being the man in the brown suit at the Terminus. I really want to compliment Mr. Dews and frankly thank him for his relentless pursuit of Betty Shank's killer. This has been a life conquest for him and I think his assessment about the doctor, the soldier and the motorcycle accident all make really good sense to me. They just don't seem to fit in my mind. But I find myself waffling back and forth between Betty being a target of this horrific crime or a woman who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I believe that Sterry's daughter believes what she testified to. I'm just not sure I believe Sterry's the killer. And I want to make that distinction really clear. I mean, the location of his car, the physical assault, And the staging that occurs at that crime scene just leave too many unanswered questions in my mind. As you can see, I'm kind of struggling in part, Tori, because there's still one more really important piece to this mystery that needs to be explored. Well, Mike, we've heard about a range of suspects, the policeman, the soldier, the doctor, and now Eric Sterry. I've got to say there is a lot more evidence for that theory, but as you say, there's still a lot of questions. But guess what we're leading into now? A brand new suspect. 
somebody that hasn't spoken publicly before. And Mike, this is your story to tell. What, how did you find this new suspect? It was incredible. I was actually in Australia doing some interviews with ABC, and they kind of surprised me with the Betty Shanks case, and they asked, what really will it take to break this case, in your opinion? And I shared my thoughts that in these kinds of cases, it takes someone over the course of a lifetime sometimes getting enough courage to step up and make the phone call. Perhaps the person is finally strong enough to make the call and say, I'm no longer afraid of this person. Like Deshi, getting the courage to finally step up and say, I think my father was involved. That takes an incredible amount of courage that can't happen when she's a child. It takes a while. Well, I finished the interview, Tori, and I jumped on a plane and headed back to the United States. And as I exited the plane in Los Angeles, my phone rang. And on the other end of the line was a man, and when I answered the phone, he said, I listened to your interview on the news. My father killed Betty Shanks. Mike, isn't it extraordinary? As a cold case investigator, you can slog away for years and sometimes the breakthrough just lands in your lap. I can't wait to hear all about this new suspect. If you found the content covered in this podcast distressing, support is available from Lifeline on 13 11 14. And if you have any information about any unsolved crime, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or go to crimestoppers.com.au. For this episode, Mike and I interviewed author and historian Ted Deuce, who generously shared his decades of research and insights into the tragic case of Betty Shanks. The third edition of his book, I Know Who Killed Betty Shanks, is available on the Mapping Evil website, so go and check it out if you haven't already. This is a Bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Tori Shepard, and Mike King. Production and sound designed by Fig Media with support from Circa 3 and Podbooth Studios. Artwork by Tell Brown Creative. Our supervising producer is Kim Douglas and our executive producer is Raquel Jackson. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia. Esri Australia.